Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am here in our studio in New York City all by myself. But in our tiny studio in Washington, D.C., we have Julia Yaffe of The Atlantic, and we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and we are talking about the world in the middle of August. It used to be you'd get to August. These were the dog days of summer. We'd be in reruns as a podcast. There would be nothing to talk about. And yet all of us have this addiction. We're sitting here following our Twitters, waiting for somebody to be fired at the White House, waiting for some global calamity to unfold. Uh, It led somebody I was talking to the other day to go, what are we going to do after Donald Trump? Can we ever go back to normal, boring politics where you don't want to watch CNN or MSNBC, where you're not feeling all head up all day long because there's some issue? Or have we turned a corner? Has politics in America become a reality show where what's most important is being entertaining? Because that seems to be the message of the Trump administration. You don't have to tell the truth. You don't even have to actually do anything. All you have to do is demand airtime and you sail right along. Is this something new? Is this the new normal, guys? You know, I think it is becoming the new normal. And I I think it's an interesting question whether some of the things that we like best uh, have helped to make it so. And I'm I'm talking about things like, um, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live and John Oliver and David Letterman before him and 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 all the various uh, all of the various very very funny fake news John Stewart Colbert etc. You know I sometimes wonder um, and I'm going to use a term that I know our listeners love um, that we are once again being hoisted on our own petard and, and there's actually been some studies that suggest that younger Americans. Um, the good news is that they are very, very savvy and sophisticated uh, viewers and listeners when it comes to um, the news and advertisements and so on. That they're they're very good at smoking out bullshit and it and it and it uh, decoding messages and advertisement and in being kind of cynical about ulterior no- motives for what politicians say and what ads say and what the media does. But that they're so good at it that they have sort of lost any sense that there's necessarily a uh, any place there for truth or for idealism or real policy differences anymore. And, and, and I sometimes wonder if, if we haven't by training – we haven't trained, trained Americans to be so sophisticated and so cynical about everything that comes to them through the media uh, that we don't have anything left except entertaining each other. What do you think, Julia? She thinks, hmm. I, hmm. you know, I, I see it going in a different direction. Um, 
and it we've gone down a similar path to to a kind of informational landscape that exists in kind of closed authoritarian countries, but we've gotten there uh, by a different road. It's this thing where you're so cynical, you're so skeptical that you are so easily fooled. Like the people who are who see false bottoms in everything, who see ulterior motives in everything, for some reason they are the ones who will swallow hook, bait, and sinker like the weirdest, least trustworthy stories. Um, The Russians are like this. The Egyptians are like this. And a lot of Americans are like this. And they, a lot of them voted for our current president. I saw a lot of this while reporting on the campaign. That's interesting. Well, I mean, why do you think that happens? Because they're stupid or because it entertains them? Of course, it fits with their systems of belief. It's probably the latter. And it's also probably, you know, our education system isn't that great. Um, I think I think a lot of it is tied up with how weak and spotty our education system is and how uh, certain localities fight to be able to teach their you know, their version of reality um, about evolution, about Islam, about all kinds of things on which there is, sure, there's different, you know, ideas and theories about um, how things happen, but there's, like, there isn't, I don't know, the catering to, even in in the education system, catering to beliefs and uh, reinforcing beliefs that already exist. Well, this is, I mean, this is why I I think that in some ways, the uh, the left the the left liberal intellectual establishment bears some bit of responsibility for this as an unintended consequence of of decades of academic theory, which has sort of taken the position that there's there's no such thing as an unmotivated argument. There's no such thing as objectivity. Uh, you know that that that. Critical theorists and postmodernists, uh, deconstructionists—all the various different names we've given to, given to different academic movements over the years—have um, have very persuasively unpacked practically everything and said, "Aha! This claim of authority made by this group of people, um, when you dig deep down, you can see that it is it is uh, self-interested, um, it is manipulative, it is partial." And they're not wrong necessarily, but but I but I do worry that one of the things that has sort of come out of that is a a suspicion that has become shared not only by their well-educated students, but also has sort of spread through the culture, which is that there is no such thing as expertise, there is no such thing as authority, there is no such thing as disinterested. No statements. such thing as truth. There's no such thing as truth. That all there is is self-interest, and that any statement that you hear from anyone can be broken down to, well, that person would say that because it's in their interest to do so, which in turn means that you know, and, and and people are not wrong to be cynical. Uh, they have been being manipulated by lots of people over the years, um, and then it, then they end up making their decisions based on communities of trust, not based on any theory of knowledge, but simply based on 
I don't trust that guy, but I trust that person. Or, you know, I trust my neighbor, but I don't trust that stranger. I trust my pastor, but I don't trust that other religion or whatever it is. And and and, and that's, you know, that, that it's not just that people are are ignorant, that there is a sort of shift in a shift in often unarticulated understandings of what it means to know something and whether it is possible to know something and whether it is in fact possible to state something with certainty and have everybody agree on it. So I'm really looking for, forward to your book called From Derrida to Trump. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think – Trump, I, a triumph of postmodernism. Oh, but that's – it's funny because that's what the Russians do. I mean yeah. their mm-hmm. their approach has long been, at least for a decade ha- internally, has been uh, – Postmodernism run amok, and then they've just decided to take their domestic methods international. Um, but they haven't been, you know. It's interesting because you look at some of the Russian propaganda and some of the stuff they say, you know, about Ukraine and so forth, just outright lies. But they haven't really quite, and you know, they've got the RT network, you know, up and you know, spinning, spinning stuff. Um, but but you know, Trump is blazing some new territory and. And in fact, I think the only thing you could really give him credit for is uh, utterly rethinking the way communications happens out of a White House. And, you know, Kelly came in and Kelly's going to clean up the White House. And I think this is all, of course, a bunch of nonsense because he can't control the president or the president's kids or the rest of the world or whatever. But, But within days, you know, you've got Trump out there bypassing everything and tweeting out to the American people, in some cases, in his same old demented fashion. You've got rumors that Stephen Miller, who I believe is one of the lizard people from the movie V, you know, the TV series V, you know, um, who's got to be the most odious guy in the world, who got into a fight the other day renouncing the sort of ideals that have been associated throughout most of its existence with the Statue of Liberty, uh, which would have been a career ender and, you know, as another sign of Kelly's great influence, right? Kelly's there. This happens and Kelly goes, you know, let's let's think about promoting this guy. Um, so let's not, you know, beatify well, I heard, Kelly. Just, I heard it's because Kelly is kind of in agreement with some of those theories on immigration and race. Um, yeah, well, that's that seems plausible given Kelly's behavior uh, at the Department of Homeland Security. But in any event, making Stephen Miller your director of communications is not designed to smooth things out no, or to focus on facts. You know, that seems like, you know, let's just throw another Molotov cocktail into the mix. And then on top of all of this, in a in a move that I don't even think, uh, you know, Putin or Erdogan or, or Kim Jong-un has quite gotten to, Trump has like hired a journalist to go and be- broadcast news on a Facebook page that's completely like pro-Trump news. He's like bypassing the networks. He's like, you know, I'm just going to create video clips and I know they'll go viral. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be from Fox or CNN or someplace else. I can just manufacture them, post them on Facebook and rely on people to make them viral. So he's created his own yeah. network. It's This is amazing. Yeah, it is I mean, amazing. And, and indeed, uh, you know something I think we've discussed before. I, I, I think it's 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 interesting to analyze all of this uh, through the lens of thinking about information warfare. Uh, uh, insofar as it's it's sort of brilliant, right? I mean, 
the the sort of Trump team writ large, and by the Trump team, I don't just mean the White House, but I also mean their out-of-government allies. And I don't mean to imply that there's necessarily direct coordination between those groups, but they've been extraordinarily successful in, in you know, attacking the enemy's communications infrastructure. In this case, the enemy's communications infrastructure being, you know, the mainstream media. Uh, they've been incredibly effective at, at both undermining it and bypassing it completely, uh, you know, such that – and this is <laughs> – I, this is part of the reason I myself find that I have writer's block these days. It is boring for me to read most of the editorials in the Times and the Post and so on because they're always saying the same thing. They're, they're saying, Trump does crazy thing. This is outrageous. And I think, snore, snore, snore. I think I read that op-ed last week and I think I read it the week before and I don't want to write one of those. And because, through all of 2016. And through all of 2016. And I absolutely get why if you're a Trump supporter in West Virginia or wherever, you know, and you glance at these headlines, you think these assholes, these elitist assholes, all they ever do is complain and it's always the same thing. I'm not going to bother. You know, I can barely bother. I am an elitist asshole, right? You know, I can barely bother to bring myself to to read this stuff anymore. Usually I can't, frankly, because it's boring. Um, you know, and, and but, 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 you know, so if, if even I don't want to bother to read this, who, who can blame people, you know, the Trump supporter in West Virginia for thinking, I'm not going to read this garbage. This is a waste of my time. Why shouldn't I just go to Donald Trump's Facebook page or whatever? You know, I trust him. He's a nice fellow. You know, why, why waste my time with this? So as a, as, an, as a form of sort of information warfare, it's been crea- creative. It's been innovative and it's been – and it continues to be incredibly successful. It also gives him but you know, cover. Julia, it also I, gives it, him it, cover to do a lot of actual – actually very important things. It's it's kind of like during the campaign while he was flooding the zone with his tweets and other crazy things, um, real things were happening. But we were also busy being outraged by his latest crazy that's tweet. Right. That we, Which, like, you also can't not signal that this stuff right. is not appropriate or, well, or that, unbecoming. That, no, that's the dilemma. And I and I feel for the right. editorial board of the New York Times, si- which is suffering yeah. from, like, an excess of – you know, I can see them – and I'm picturing them. This is very unfair to them because I know that they don't all really look this way. But I'm picturing them as a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white guys – all a little heavy and all becoming more and more red in the face with each passing week that they get more and more apt. He like, used you know, the wrong I, fork. Right. And then he did what he did. Now what he's, you know, and I, and I, and I see their dilemma that, as I said in a, in, in a recent podcast, we should be outraged all the time, you know, because it is outrageous all the time. And yet sustaining a level, out, constant outrage is exhausting and, and boring. And it's yeah. numbing. The, the boring is, I think, a defensive Reaction, because, as well, is the, the numbing. Like you just and the pompous. We could do without the pompous, yeah. but they don't. That, that's that's just a, they can't do without the pompous. So, but you know, I think I think um, Rosa, you're bringing up a really important point here, which I think is lost in a lot of this debate, and that is not the way Trump is changing communications, or not how his communications look like information warfare, but that information warfare is in fact changing. And that information warfare goes on constantly. 
And it was not the Russians acting just in the 2016 election. They're acting every single day with bots, with interventions, with their own media tools. And Trump is doing stuff every single day. And other players in the world are doing stuff every single day. And it only seems likely to escalate. And it only seems like the good guys, I'm sorry. The good guys are not innovating. The bad guys are innovating and the good guys are not. And this indeed this is the Thucydides trap. We need to get Graham Allison and Corey back here, right? You know, the, 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 the established power is the, you know, dominant liberal media in the U.S. and Europe and the dominant liberal intellectual elite. And the rising power is, is the sort of Trump and sort of Putin surge of populism, which isn't playing by the same rules, is being extremely innovative in their tactics. Uh, and, and the good guys are not. Has somebody used the term Trump and proletariat yet? <laughs> I'm sure someone has, but I have a feeling well, they, you're not the first. But, no, but who knows? I Maybe wish you I, are. I wish. I have to say, I wish I was. But 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 I think you know they're all out there playing for that um, ball, and you know Erdogan's trying to change the media in his country to work that way, and the Iranians certainly have done it, and Al Jazeera is doing it, and the Chinese have certainly done it, and so forth. But but every individual player, you know, this is this is the big change that's happened in the media. It used to be in the media that you needed a platform in order to get the word out. Um, you had to build some kind of newspaper, some kind of radio station, some kind of television Unless you're station, the stealthy some... deep state radio podcast in which you just you just reach out well, directly see, but the to deep the sta- Trump and proletariat. Yes. No, we reach out directly <laughs> to the Trump and proletariat who love us. Um, but uh, but no, I, I think that actually we're a symptom of what this changes, which is you don't because the platform which you used to have to build is there for free. It's Facebook, it's YouTube, it's um, Google, it's you know there 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 countless examples of it. It's Twitter, and so all of a sudden, everybody can be in this game, and because everybody can be in this game, you can't actually know who everybody is. I mean, apparently Trump was locked in some kind of exchange with uh, uh, some you know fake Twitter bot. Um, who was later proved to be a fake Twitter bot. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be more of that. You know, it's it's uh, but but I but I also think that from the point of view of governments, there is going to be an imperative to always be fighting the information war in every place that it matters. And it's not just, you know, propaganda. It's what makes it so outrageous that the State Department has given $80 million by the Congress to combat this kind of stuff. And Rex Tillerson, our absentee Secretary of State, is like, no, I don't want to use that. What possible defense could he have for not wanting to use that in this kind of environment? Silence. Neither one of you is going to take up <laughs> Rex Tillerson's side. Um, but, it, but it is new, right, Rosa? I mean, it's, this is a new world. Well, it's always a new world, David. That's the thing about the world. Can wow. it just stop for a second? That's deflating. Well, but, that's, but, but, de- that's but really deflating. In some ways, I, I, it's back to the future, right? Because I, I actually think that the anomaly, in some ways, was the period. Uh, you know, there's a period of, frankly, less than a hundred years. Um, 
uh, in which in the United States and in Western Europe, uh, these you know powerful mainstream media outlets, authoritative media outlets emerged. Um, they made money. You had professional journalists. You had foreign bureaus. You had Walter Cronkite on TV, and everybody was saying, "Oh goodness, Walter Cronkite says so. It must be so." And 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 that's the anomaly, you know, because because not only now has that changed, is that basically gone? But I think that before before the last hundred years or so, it, it didn't really exist either. You know, that, that the media landscape in the United States, I don't know as much about the media landscape in other countries, but, you know, the media landscape in the United States was scruffy guerrilla warfare for most of our nation's history. You know, that, that you didn't have the newspaper of record in Walter Cronkite. You had people printing out broadsheets and slapping them up on, you know, nearby trees and saying whatever crazy scurrilous stuff they wanted to say and there were no objective media outlets. Nobody pretended to be objective. They were all associated with political parties or political platforms or random individual crazy people and that's the way it was. So, so, so I think although the technological platforms we have now are new, um, that the, the phenomenon of, of a sort of decentered lack of authoritative middle is, is not itself new. So – I think there's um, there's no coincidence that Donald Trump happened after a, a decade of newsroom cuts and the closures of uh, local regional newspapers that were once the link between the national news outlets and communities that now felt like they ha- they weren't being heard. The other thing this makes me think about is uh, something that my boss, Jeff Goldberg, editor of The Atlantic, wrote when um, ISIS started beheading journalists. And he recalled the first uh, journalist that Islamist terrorists beheaded, Daniel Pearl. And he said that was the, you know, he had reported from some of these areas himself. And he was saying that before they didn't hurt journalists because they needed us. They needed us to get their message out to the world, their you know ransom demands, whatever their political demands. Once the internet became accessible and usable for everybody, they didn't need <laughs> journalists. You could behead anymore. all the journalists. You could behead all. They were journalists became more valuable to you as ransom for ransom themselves. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it's a it's a it's a kind of a dark situation. But having said that, you know, despite the fact that a lot of the stuff that's out there isn't real news, there is some real news. And here we are in the middle of August and the Security Council voted this weekend 15 to nothing to impose sanctions on North Korea of about a billion dollars, which is about a third of the exports they have as a country because it's a very, very small economy that's pretty disconnected from the world. And even though we've had this is the seventh set of sanctions imposed. Uh, it is the largest, and it is a sign that uh, the world is concerned. And Russia and China voted on this, on this, uh, with the United States on this resolution, which is to the credit of uh, Russia and China, as well as Nikki Haley and the the U.S. team who are pushing to try to get this done. Uh, but this North Korea thing is a real big. Crisis. It is a real thing where you have a country 
uh, with nuclear weapons that's months away from the ability to deliver them to the United States, which is something that is intolerable to the United States. Uh, and as we learned on last week's podcast, even, you know, sort of fairly rational-minded Democratic administrations like the Clinton administration, there was a fairly strong consensus among Defense Department officials that a war in the Korean Peninsula, even if it took a couple of hundred thousand lives, would be worth fighting. That, that by the way, the was a pretty mind-blowing thing that Graham Allison said in the last episode, which is that they had simply decided uh, when they thought this over uh, – uh, the last time around, but you know, well, that would be all right. It would be a price worth paying. Was that was that was pretty amazing? Yeah, I thought it was amazing myself, and I sort of have gone around and mentioned it to a bunch of people, and they all said it was amazing. I didn't emphasize it on the show last week because I didn't want to appear. No, stupid. it was a, it was a it was. side point on the show, but yeah, but 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 you know, it 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 is a sign of the fact that many many people, Democrats and Republicans, rational people. Look at North Korea with a nuclear weapon, a country that might not be deterred by usual deterrence policy, and see it as so destabilizing if they have the ability to deliver one of those to the U.S. that maybe the unthinkable should actually be thought about. And this is that sort of sacrificing out there a looming. few hundred thousand South Koreans is a small price to pay for for uh, reducing the nuclear threat level. Right. Well, we sacrificed 800,000 yeah. Iraqis to get rid of a WMD program that didn't exist. No, I, I, I applauded Cram uh, Allison's honesty because generally speaking, that's not the kind of utilitarian calculus that people will uh, engage in in public. You know, that those are the kind of closed door discussions that, you know, people people have. But uh, But to say publicly – you know, yeah, we're basically okay with the idea that a few hundred thousand South Koreans might have to die in order to get rid of the North Korean nuclear threat uh, uh, was fairly mind-blowing. And I think you're right, David. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, to be, uh, you know, I think we all have a lot of respect for Graham Allison and, and he's not a, he's neither a frivolous man nor is he, nor is he a man who does not care at all about human life. And for, for serious-minded people such as himself, to have come to that conclusion, I think tells us a lot about exactly how terrifying they, in fact, find the North Korean threat. Well, that was 20-odd years ago. I think it was 1994, so it was 23 years ago. Uh, And the threat was, you know, 23 and a half years away. Now it's half a year away. Right. And it's 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 a whole different kettle of fish. And we have in that White House hot seat facing this right now, possibly uh, the least experienced, least capable, least stable president in U.S. history. And that really does create a situation where accidents uh, or miscalculations are— Well, and I'm remembering um, a comment of Donald Trump's during the uh, campaign when he was talking about Europe and and the possibility of using technical nuclear weapons in Europe. And he rather cheerfully said something along the lines of, you know, well, those countries are very small. (laughs) So I don't think Donald Trump is likely to be the man who says, we must not do anything reckless lest uh, lest we lose the lives of some South Koreans. Uh, I think Donald Trump. Well, and also Donald Trump is on the record several times during the campaign and, and in consultations with others saying, well, if we have nuclear weapons, why don't we just use them? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, you know, we've been living in fear. Of, I think he missed you know, the last couple, 60 or 70 years of world history. 
somehow. And uh, when he was in school, he just missed that whole bit. Are you saying that he wasn't a studious student? Uh, it's possible. Possible. It's possible he wasn't a studious student. Allegedly. But this thing is... This thing is out there looming over all of this. And, I mean, Julia, you've been covering stuff like this for a relatively long period of time. Isn't it a little bit strange that this story isn't sort of demanding all the bandwidth of people when you consider the stakes involved? I think that this country has never really... I think, like, Asia doesn't grab our attention the way the Middle East did or the way Russia does. Um, I think if, for example, I think about this often, like if the Russians were Koreans, if they if they were Asian or if they were not white and Christian, would we be obsessing about them as much as we do? Hmm. You think that the the Koreans we we view the North Koreans as so unlike us that we can't be bothered to obsess about them? Or yeah, or that it's just so exotic and weird, and like I also think, and 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 that uh, we have and that Kim Jong Un is so has become such a such a caricature. Yeah, well, that, that's well, here's, like here's it, it, you, it's hard to take about. it seriously yeah. that he would actually do I mean, it. I mean, and here this goes back to our earlier discussion of of. Uh, you know the American public is 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 very cynical and rightly so, um, because they have been manipulated so often in the past, including by the supposedly supposed voices of authority and reason and expertise, and and I myself I I don't know anything about North Korea. I'm I'm I know less about North Korea than I know about most parts of the world. So I'm. I too am, am sort of restricted to what I happen to read in the in the New York Times and the Post and places like that, and I can't help having a constant little cynical voice in the back of my head saying, "Oh come on, guys! You guys are always telling us that you know there's the axis of evil and Saddam Hussein's got WMD and this is the biggest threat and that's the biggest threat. You know, and Al Qaeda is about to have another 9/11 attack, and you know the business of the national security professional is to inflate threats because that's their business because that's what keeps them in business. That's what gives them their jobs. That's what gives them their authority." And there is always a little voice in my head when we talk about North Korea that thinks, come on, you know, is this for real as a threat that I really should be waking up at night thinking, my God, you know, if the price is war, so be it, because this is just, you know, this is like the Nazis and we just have to do it versus versus is this, you know, yet another example of trying to drum up hysteria about something, you know, we got a goofy, crazy guy who's posturing, but who's not really going to lob nukes at anybody. So we should just get over it and so forth. And it, and I think it's, it's, it is, it is hard to figure that out, right? I think it's hard for the intelligence professionals to figure that out. And, and that's part of the problem, right? That sometimes they just get it wrong. They were wrong about Saddam Hussein, you know, that they mistook the posturing for, for a threat that didn't in fact exist uh, in the form that they thought it did. And and so, you know, how 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 should we react? Because on some level, I think we we there is a sense of fatigue of yeah, we've heard that before. You know, crazy despotic leader of you know weird foreign country far away uh, might get nukes and do something bad, and and you're telling me I should be anxious about it. Maybe I shouldn't be anxious about it. It does. Well, I mean, know. but 
Go on, Julia. No, I just, I just, uh, I don't know. They just don't. It doesn't freak me out. It just seems like they, they just, they just won't. Also, because again, we've been. It's one of those things that I've personally become numb to. Like, there's just only so much worrying and hysteria that even this Jewish girl can handle. Oh, those North Koreans and their little nuclear weapons. (laughs) Ha ha. Yeah. And also, it's also yeah, like but, we, but, we also – I think it's also um, our worry and um, our, you know, what are we going to do? What's our policy? How are we going to handle this? It f- feeds into the North Korean narrative that they're important, that right. we're right. after them, that we don't want them to have these weapons. exactly what we did with Saddam Hussein, exactly what we did with – you know, we, we've done this before where we've actually built up – and created in some way. We're helping them create this threat. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you'll, for, you'll forgive me. You'll forgive me, but but you know, ju- the danger of the policies that we've had in the past is precisely that it inures one to real threats. No, I, I and, agree. And the problem is that there's now no way to know. You know that that is well, this actually, where we cry there is, wolf again, or well, but I think in this case there is a way to know, and and I think that's why you get fairly rational people. Um, who've been thinking about this issue to say fairly drastic measures are involved. And the way to know is this. We know that North Korea has detonated multiple nuclear warheads, that they're building a nuclear weapons stockpile. And we also are able to see with our eyes that they are launching missiles downrange that actually have the ability of reaching parts of the United States. And each one of these tests gets further and further downrange. And all of them are um, uh, significant enough to reach Japan or reach, um, uh, obviously, uh, uh, parts of the Korean Peninsula. And so when you get take all that together, there is a real legitimate threat there. Well, but um, what we don't and- know, though, David, is, is I mean, you could have said very similar things about Saddam Hussein, and we did say very similar things about Saddam Hussein. And then the what we learned after the invasion of Iraq was that yeah he was he was saying and doing all those things but he was doing it defensively he was you know he was doing it because he thought oh shit the only way i can keep the americans from invading me again is by acting as though at any moment i could you know nuke the israelis or do something really crazy you know that that that, that what we don't know is the is the intent we don't know if in fact that our hawkish rhetoric on north korea is driving them to do this defensively with no particular intent to well, okay. Let me let me play a thought experiment with you and just sort of say, look, we do know they're detonating nuclear weapons. We do know that they're launching them pretty far downrange, and we do know that the rhetoric of their administration, not not some sort of psychoanalysis of a CIA analyst, but the rhetoric of their administration is that we will attack the United States, we will punish the United States, the United States will never be safe as long as we are here, um, which is either rhetoric or it's true. Given that situation, if you're the president of the United States and you are informed that next week you are absolutely certain that they will have the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon that could hit Seattle and that from that moment forward they would always have that capability, what do you do? No, I. that's fair. That's fair. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah, and that's, that's the dilemma. But I, but I do think that... The, it's this is part of the reason that it's been we i mean i think there are two reasons that we have seen less attention to this than you might expect one being as julia said earlier that we're all perpetually distracted by the latest trump nutso tweet 
uh, which tends to capture the news uh, and that dominate the headlines. Um, and the the other being that for an ordinary person, this feels like an old story. You know, haven't we been hearing for 30 years that the North Koreans are about to get a nuclear bomb and we got to do something and so on? And so what else is new? And I'm not really paying very close attention. And our intelligence agencies are always getting it wrong. And, you know, that, that, that I think that that is a big part of why people aren't focusing on it. I also just don't believe that they'll use it. I mean, again, it's on the level of belief and gut instinct and nothing scientific. It, they'll get they'll get a bomb that can hit Seattle, and that's kind of again, if if uh, Libya and Ukraine taught us anything or taught the bad guys anything, it's that if you want yourself not to be invaded, if you want to preserve your government and your territorial integrity, you either get a nuke but you or you certainly don't give up the nukes you already have because then somebody some bigger country will invade you. And so I just think that North Korea is in it for the same reasons as Iran is not to use the nukes but to catapult themselves into a different stratum of powerful nations. And I wonder what the lesson what do we think the lesson the North Koreans take away from the Iran deal is? Well, I think they take a lesson, as Julia says, from the Libya circumstance even more, which is Gaddafi gives up his weapons and a couple right, of years later right. he's out Next of power. Thing you know, he's, yeah, dead in a ditch. And, and, and I think that's the case. But I also think that as one's sort of doing the arithmetic on this, you have to sort of say, well, we've had a lot of nuclear weapons. The Russians have had a lot of nuclear weapons. A bunch of other com- countries have had them. Why is this more dangerous? The Russians have hated us. Why is this more dangerous? And I think the, the 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 way the arithmetic works out is one we've said for a long time: Kim Jong Un does not seem that stable. Um, two, um, now we have a new situation where well, there's a new rogue actor on the global stage, and that's the president of the United States, Donald Trump, who is not that stable. So for the first time. The United States has somebody at the helm and this other country that is in question as somebody at the helm that's not stable. Next, um, the, the North Koreans are... What is what is this noise that we're hearing? It's a little Russian gremlin. Oh, it's a little Russian gremlin. It was gremlin. Rose's fault. <laughs> It was, it um, was Rose's dog's it fault. It was Rose's a, dog. Blame the dog. <laughs> it was an iPhone malfunction. Oh, a malfunction? Are you actually like watching videos no, in the no, middle of the podcast? No, I was learning podcast? all about North Korea. Oh and my then God. just by, well, actually, no, I, in fact, this is rather sinister. I will tell you the truth. Um, I, in fact, was fascinated, David, by what you said, which I had not been aware of before, which is that there's now, you know, DonaldJTrump.com and they're luring away actual, quote unquote, journalists and broadcast anchors from places like CNN to, you know, read the quote unquote news on DonaldJTrump.com. And I was so fascinated by this that I that I was looking on Twitter for it and I found it. But then it began. And this is indeed a sign of the Trump, the Trump. Trump and proletariat's expertise at information warfare without any act on my part. It began to speak to me and tell me the Donald J. Trump.com news. Is that, is I didn't that hear Lara anything. Trump? Did is, Julia? That the, the, um, is that the, the daughter-in-law of Donald this is, Trump? This is 
Because well, she I, started doing videos talking about how great Kelly, the person is. Kelly, I can't even. Right, it's uh, it's this woman from C- it's this woman CNN. from CNN. She used to work Kelly at McEnany? CNN. And Kelly, then, yes, thank you. She oh, made she's her now an RNC. On, well, she's now on Trump TV, sharing the quote unquote real news mm-hmm. on DonaldJTrump.com, and and all it took all it took for her voice to be catapulted onto deep state radio was was me looking at it uh, which is all I can say folks sinister. is if you wanted an example of what we were talking about which is <laughs> there is this giant problem with North Korea right, and all, I can all sorts of strategic tweets. you're so right <laughs> and, and and that we're distracted by the insanity of Trump from addressing it here it's happened, and the Trump and proletariat have triumphed over the deep state over momentarily. The They've trumped yeah. us. They've trumped us. Despite, despite, yeah. Well, we won't let that happen. We, you know, we're the deep state, <laughs> and we have means. And my phone was of muted getting back too. After... I don't know how this happened. They obviously took it over. <clears throat> wow, that's uh, that's that's very very disturbing. But to go back briefly to the point, the North Koreans also have the ability to. And the and seemingly would be more likely to deliver weapons like that to uh, non-state actors or terrorist groups, um, uh, and so on. So it's 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 a different kind of threat than past nuclear threats. But but Julia, when we talk about well, that's that, what we thought Saddam Hussein was going to do too, right? We were convinced he was going to give them to uh, Al Qaeda. Well, yeah, but again, here's the difference: he didn't have them. We know they do have them. We thought he um, had them, though. Well, yes, but we also know that they do. So the fact that he didn't, uh, well, I'm not going to oh, go in this see, circle here. But, <laughs> but that's the problem, right, the, is I keep saying to you, yes, but David, we've been wrong before. How do I know we're not wrong again? Are you really going to, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, and I do think that this is part of, you know, this is part of Trump's victory in general is is that public faith in the experts has been badly undermined, partly because the experts do get it wrong, not always, but enough enough on enough important issues to, you know, radically undermine their credibility such that now the experts say something and we all think, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. And what level, you know, there's a downside to taking them seriously. There's a downside to not taking them seriously. And that nice man, Donald Trump, says I shouldn't listen to them. Well, it brings us to another point here, Julia, which is, the Russians still do have lots and lots of nuclear weapons. We tend not to worry about them. Do you think that's the right calculus? No. Uh, in fact, uh, I got in trouble for saying this uh, a couple months ago at a conference where I said, you know, why are we obsessing over ISIS and talking about them as if they're an existential threat, and which they are not, but talking about teaming up with Russia in order to fight ISIS, where ISIS is not and has never been an existential threat to the U.S. Russia, on the other hand, is perhaps the only country in the world that does pose an existential threat to us. And meanwhile, can we not forget about Pakistan, which while has no particular plan to be a threat to the U.S., is is, uh, everybody's favorite example of uh, unstable, extremely unstable politics uh, growing Mm -hmm. more so by the minute in a country with numerous nuclear weapons. Well, that's 
that's the, no Pakistan has two hundred plus nuclear warheads. They don't have the ability to deliver it. The Chinese probably have sixty or yeah, more. Yeah, but going ICBMs. back to the threat of of them ending up in the hands of non-state actors, ending up in the hands of the oh, highest yeah, bidder, no. et cetera. The the, the threat Pakist- emanating Pac- from Pakistan. Pakistan is a real is is a real threat, and of course, North Korea poses the threat of triggering. A need in Japan, yeah. for example, yeah. to go nuclear, just like Iran poses. Isn't that threat. what Trump suggested during that campaign? Yes, he was like, right. "Why doesn't so Japan the, just have nu- nuclear weapons to deter the North Koreans?" Everybody should get them. Well, let me let me sort of bring us to a close here with an observation on that, and that is uh, one of the biggest risks associated with proliferation of any sort is that the more proliferation there is the greater the likelihood there is of an accident. Uh, and we say, well, there hasn't been an accident of this sort in 75 years. But the reality is that actually these programs are littered with accidents uh, and and not just near misses. Uh, this is the one, uh, this, is, this week is the 72nd anniversary of the attack on Nagasaki. Um, it's not a well-known fact, but Nagasaki was not a primary target for the United States atomic bomb program. It was on the list of the 17 original targets, but others got ticked off the list for other reasons. In fact, the number one city on the list was Kyoto, and the Secretary of War of the United States at the time, Henry Stimson, had gone to Kyoto on his honeymoon, and so he had fond feelings about it. So he argued it was a cultural capital and should be taken off the list. And even the morning of August 9th, 1945, when boxcar, the plane that was carrying the fat man bomb that was going to go off in in, in Nagasaki, it was taking off for another city altogether. That city was covered with uh, smoke uh, uh, or um, uh, fog. And so they said, no, we're not going to go there. We're going to Nagasaki. And they dropped the bomb in the wrong place. And then the plane, while flying back, ran out of gas and had a near crash landing, an emergency landing in Okinawa. And so this example of the last use of a nuclear weapon uh, went to a city that wasn't planned uh, in a way that wasn't planned with circumstances that were, weren't planned, where 40,000 people died and 40,000 people were injured. And since then, we've had near misses, near alerts, planes with nuclear weapons in them crashing into the sea. And fortunately, the powers that were involved in those things kept them from getting out of hand. But it does seem that the more countries you've got there and the more time you've got them out there, the more we're testing our our luck. Um, and that's yet another part of this North Korea problem, which probably should encourage us not to be uh, distracted by uh, tweets all the time. Well, and I don't mean that person. That's the kind of grim conclusion that I, I like very much, David. Well, that's why you're leading us all to a silo someplace. Have you <laughs> kept looking for silos? I know. We've, Have you we've, found really, a we've silo? been distracted from the subject of my silo, and I'm glad we're coming back to it. <laughs> well, D- uh, David Sanger is off fishing in Alaska, but he said he's looking for silos good, good. while he is off fishing Excellent. and that he will report back when he gets back from Alaska. I hope but, he stocks it with locks. <laughs> d- d- a silo full of locks? Yeah, he's Alaska is, is, salmon. He's gonna. Yes, never no, mind. I see where I, you're okay, going. Okay, never mind. I, I see where you're going with that, and I think that the one thing our silo really needed was a deli, uh, <laughs> and I think that's an important innovation. 
Julia, for which you'll get an enormous amount of credit from all of us who are in the silo, uh, which sadly may be sooner than anybody had planned. Isn't that the kind of apocalyptic big finish you yes, want, Rosa, thank all you, the David. time? Thank you. The I feel, world I feel so ending much not now. with a not with a whimper, but with a bang. That that's a T.S. Eliot reference for those of you out there Indeed. who didn't pick up on that. Um, thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. I hope you. I hope that we all live to see the next Yay. Deep State Radio podcast, which will be next week, so it won't be that long. Maybe things won't go completely off the tracks. Uh, thanks, all of you, for listening, and uh, keep tuning in to Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.